Welcome to the first ever episode of the Freak Takes Podcast. For those of you that have been reading my blog, some of you for a year plus, this is what my voice sounds like. And if, if you don't like it, I'm sorry, I can't really fix it. Extremely excited to have you here. So I've made this podcast to accompany a piece I have coming out in a few weeks and works in progress, which I've provisionally titled Edison Technical Entrepreneur. And when I did all the recording, I thought the podcast and the piece were going to come out on the same day, but it turns out I had the date wrong. So anywhere in the podcast where I say my piece and works in progress that comes out today, just imagine I said my piece and works in progress that comes out in a few weeks. Really excited to have you here and hope you enjoy. With that, let's get into it. Unlike many famous individuals from science and engineering history, Thomas Edison was world famous long before he died. He was well known as many things. The Wizard of Recorded Sound, The Wizard of Menlo, Researcher, Inventor, even Fraud. And I came out with a piece today in Works in Progress that talks about why, in my opinion, the most accurate way to cast him and properly assess his contributions is as Edison, technical entrepreneur. And as an accompaniment to that piece, I'm releasing this podcast today, the first edition of the Freak Takes podcast, where we're going to dive into stories about Edison's lab, how his brain worked. And this should be useful for anybody who just wants to hear more stories about Edison. If you want to know more about how his lab was run, or if you'd like to know more about the answer to the question, should we think about what Edison did as science? Because many disagree on that point. We'll get into all that and more, including how when we really reflect on Edison's approach and we look at some of the stories that come up in this podcast, what Edison was doing was actually remarkably similar to some of the researchers in the field of early molecular biology that we talked about in this substack in the Rockefeller Foundation piece. The best place to start is probably by diving into an excerpt by Elting Morrison, who is one of the founding members of the MIT STS department, that's science, technology, and society. He wrote a history of, I guess you could call it a history of American learning by doing, called From Know-How to Nowhere, and he describes Edison as follows. In a field full of uncertain potentials, he often did seem to proceed to his triumphs by a certain kind of laborious sorcery, ill-prepared in mathematics, disrespectful of the boundaries set by available theory. He took on all the forces of nature with a combination, as he said rather unfairly about himself, of 2% inspiration and 98% hard work. The inspiration was informed by years of practice and shrewd observation. The hard work was simply amazing. And if the means by which he brought off his extraordinary efforts are not wholly clear, neither is the cause for his obsessive labors. No diver into nature's deepest mysteries, caring next to nothing for the advancement of knowledge and even less for the world's goods. He would become absorbed in making something work well enough to make money. The test in the marketplace was for him, apparently, the moment of truth for his experiments. And once this was passed, he became forthwith absorbed in making something else. By the time of Edison's foray into lighting, he was a commercially successful inventor many times over. Probably his first successful invention would be an early form of the stock ticker. He invented a letter repeater, which I guess you could say it's kind of like a copying machine today, which was a very big deal. They seemed to be in so many of the major offices at the time, and they were a godsend to the people who used them. He invented a phonograph, which was the thing he was probably most famous for for a while. 
a carbon button transmitter which made calling on the phone far, far, far more clear. And he did all of this by the age of 30. There was something otherworldly driving this guy. And even at the time, people had the sense that he was quite unique. He was one of one. But he didn't seem to want money as many inventors of the day did. At that time, most R&D departments didn't even do their own research. Essentially, garage inventors would send them patents, and the R&D department was a group of lawyers and other people that would decide which of those patents could be useful to them, and they would say yes or no, and they would decide whose patents to license. Inventing was a pretty common way for people who had some technical talent to take their shot at becoming millionaires. For a lot of them, this was why they did it. That's why they spent all this time after their real jobs doing inventing. But that was not Edison. If Edison ever got money, he either plugged it directly back into his research until he was in financial trouble, or other times he would give it to his wives and just let them spend it how they wished. But with that being said, he was also not your average researcher. He didn't really care to understand why things worked in the normal way that professors did, unless it could help him build something. In fact, he's gone on the record stating that it was his nightmare to live what he saw as the life of a German professor at the time, where you spend 30 years studying something obscure like the motion of a fly's wings and then die in obscurity without ever having really built or done anything practical with your knowledge. Francis Gell, who was Edison's longtime assistant and wrote some memoirs later in his life about his experiences with him, said this of his longtime boss. In almost every way, Mr. Edison was different from the accepted standards of greatness and even of science. It was unheard of to start a large private business laboratory, and it was charged that he was creating a specialty of inventing as a new profession, although he had never attended a regular school or college. He was regarded by scientists as a sort of intruder, a revolutionist of an inferior stamp, far below themselves. He set the old school aghast by his methods of research, wherein, instead of following the traditional technique, he went direct to nature and he asked her the questions he wanted to solve. And I should note that not all professors hated him. Particularly, a lot of European ones didn't look that fondly upon Edison. They used phrases like unschooled American huckster and things like that when they first hear about some of his claims. And there were American professors who thought similarly about him too. But one notable group that might be the absolute opposite in terms of what they thought about Edison would be the MIT professors at the time. At least a lot of them. When in around 1910 or 1920, whenever MIT was building their dome, they polled their professors trying to figure out what names are influential enough in scientific and technical history that we think they should be inscribed on the dome. And when they were doing that, they ended up only picking the names of people who were deceased already, but for a while, living names were in the running. And when they collected the polls, Edison's name rose right to the top next to names like Newton and Galileo. So for a certain set of people, smart people, Edison was like a living god. Not necessarily for people who valued inventing and getting to something first. That wasn't really what he did for the most part. I talk about that in my Works in Progress article that came out today. And not necessarily for people who value the life of a pure researcher who gets to the underlying truths of nature through theory. But 
If what you value is somebody who can invent on the scientific frontier and do extremely practical stuff like the MIT people valued, where they were engineers kind of at the forefront, where some people thought of them as a technical university and they thought of themselves as kind of the first big applied science university doing it on a big scale. You can absolutely see how somebody like Edison's name would rise to the top as somebody they thought should be the dream life of their students. And his different motivations and ways of thinking and approaching problems did get him different results a lot of the time. But also, a lot of the times, these results did get him jeered at by the research establishment. Sometimes this was because he made some finding that made all the difference in terms of function, but sounded really similar to previous attempts by others. This was the case with his carbonized filament findings, where it sounded so similar to what some people in the UK had been doing previously that they figured he must be lying or mistaken if he was saying that his functioned so differently and so much better than theirs. But other times it was just because his findings on the face of them seemed silly. This was the case with his dynamo. Edmund Morris writes in his biography of Edison, The prototype bipolar dynamo looked so lankily strange as it stood on its armature, like the bottom half of Paul Bunyan, as to evoke hilarity of engineers more used to squat generators. John Tyndall, who was very big in the UK electrical engineering research establishment at the time, who had lavished such praise on Edison's loudspeaker telephone, mocked it as wholly new and wholly misguided. Writing in the Journal of Gaslighting, he harumphed. It is difficult to adequately express how ludicrous the inefficiency of the arrangement, but one thing is abundantly certain, and that is that the person who seriously proposed it was wholly destitute of scientific knowledge, of either electricity or the science of energy. Now, what sort of process leads this completely unscientifically trained man to a dynamo so different that he would get made fun of like this? What did the process look like and what did his way of thinking look like that could lead him to be so confident in a design that seemingly every other professor was positive was wrong? That and more is the subject of today's episode. This is the Freak Takes podcast brought to you in concert with the Good Science Project. Uh, I have a very Gen Z band that I've contracted to make a theme song, and I'm pretty excited about that. But for today, you just get that little bit of harmonica, and I'd like to say thanks for spending this time with me, and hopefully you enjoy the first episode of the Freak Takes podcast. Whether you're somebody who's looking to help build a second golden age of R&D and engineering and science yourself, or you just like hearing stories about a great era that we had. I appreciate you taking the time. Please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter and send me any show ideas you have. Back to the action. There's a fantastic excerpt in Gell's memoirs, which are called Menlo Park Reminiscences, where you see so many different aspects of the differentiated Edison production function on display. And it's Edison interacting with his mathematician physicist Upton. Upton was a guy who Edison called culture because of his Princeton PhD and polish, and he was altogether from a different world than Edison. He liked theory more, and, and Edison fully used guys like Upton or somebody named Kennelly, normal researchers who were known as fantastic at their craft. And Edison was not completely derisive of the research profession. He made full use of people like this. He just thought that there was more and that the profession was leaving a lot on the table. And that's why he'd make fun of Upton and people like him a lot. 
but he'd be making fun of them in a way you can imagine a startup founder making fun of their accountant or their lawyer. They're not not essential to the process, but they have jobs that sometimes they could feel a little bit like a square, you know? Getting back to the excerpt, Jell writes, In conversation with Upton, Edison said, Magnetism follows a law just like that controlling electric current. When you put too much current into a wire, you make it hot. And when these other fellows use too many windings of wire in their magnet field and too much current for a small cross-section of iron, they throttle the lines and force it out of the right path. And this is Edison talking about how he thought the overheating of his competitors' dynamos was not just bad, it was because of the complete inefficiency of their bad designs, whereas they were viewing it as inevitable. And he just thought they're wasting energy in their designs, and if I do better, I could just have a better dynamo. And back to gel. I believe you can saturate a piece of iron so that you can't force another line onto it. I want you to make some experiments with the idea and see whether or not I'm right. I don't agree with these electricians who say that wire coils are everything. The best and cheapest form of magnet is the old horseshoe style a boy can buy at any hardware store. That's the kind of model I want you to follow. But no one is using that kind, Mr. Edison, said Upton. So much the better. Don't look at any of the other dynamos that have been produced so far, Upton. Ours has got to be entirely different. We intend to use it for incandescent lamps, while those now in use are for arc lamps. Our job is to avoid their bad points. Can you tell me some bad points, Mr. Edison? I've already mentioned one. Too little iron. Bad iron contacts is another. Just like a bad contact between wires carrying current, it's a big drawback. And this is Edison making a lot of comparisons between how the science of electricity works and how the physics of magnetism work in his head at least, which he thought worked even more analogously than a lot of people thought at the time. I'd imagine he came to this belief through his history of experimentation in the area and just how much time he spent on it. Now back to gel. Nobody has ever thought that contacts made any great difference with magnetism set up then. I'm sure they do. A bad contact which interrupts the flow of force will put resistance in its path. We must make our contacts for magnetism equally as good as those for a current of electricity. Too much airspace should not be allowed in the field. I think the poles of the magnet should fit against the armature rather than be separated from it. Upton. Do you think that separation increases the resistance of the flow of the magnetic force? I do. You're catching on, Upton. And... Here goes Edison. He's about to make an analogy that shows just how his brain works. Edison was a scientifically informed inventor, practical engineer, whatever you want to call him, but that's how he thought through and through. And there's a lot of people who are famous in scientific history, like Feynman is one prominent example, who are fantastic at explaining things to people. And Edison was also fantastic at explaining things to people, but something that separates him from Feynman is a guy like Feynman seems to have been quite excellent at math and often thought pretty mathematically. But if he did, he was extremely good at reverse translating it and explaining it to mortals like us. Edison seems to have mostly kind of thought like a mortal and that he just thought about these things in a very, very practical sense. And you sometimes get very differentiated ideas just because so much of his knowledge base has been built up at a lab bench. And he reads papers, but he primarily goes to the lab bench for ideas. And here's him explaining the idea further to Upton. Did you ever play with a horseshoe magnet when you were a boy? Do you recall the bar that lay across the two ends of the horseshoe? 
When you removed it to a distance, it wouldn't respond to the pull of the magnet, but as you shoved it nearer and nearer, suddenly it felt the drag of the force and snapped over against the poles. Now think that over and apply it to our job. And here's Edison saying, go off, kind of do your work, you, you got it, you have the instructions. Upton knowingly goes, oh, I think I see your point, when distance or air intervenes, it's a form of resistance, and then Edison comes back with more ideas. Another point we want to change is the kind of material used in the moving parts. Some present-day dynamo armature cores are made of solid iron, and yet people wonder why they get hot when running. Back at Newark, while making my telegraph instruments, I always found soft iron was the best to use in my coils. I made it red hot and annealed it before using it. I long ago found that an electromagnet containing bad iron would often stick. And here's Edison not just drawing on his experience at the lab bench in Newark, but annealing is an iron working process. This is something that usually the profession at the time that would have known how to use this was blacksmith. The amount of experiment he could draw upon was just insane, but also the amount of practical knowledge he had with metals, with materials, was off the charts because of a lifetime of 18-hour days doing this stuff. He was obsessed. And he continues to Upton. We want an iron that won't retain magnetism as steel does. We want it to let the magnetism fly out as soon as we stop the current. It must be able to change its force whenever we change the current up or down. And then him saying to Upton, you've studied under Heimholtz and you've been to college, so you ought to be able to work these things out, which was a pretty good shot at Upton. And then Upton once again, kind of, I think, looks at him quizzically and Edison explains to him how he can have Crussy, the Swiss mechanic, rig up some experiments that can be useful to Upton in the course of study. And after he's finished outlining those experiments, he starts to explain to Upton exactly why he doesn't think the diameters of the wire used mean that much, even though a lot of the other researchers of the day thought it was a big deal. And as Edison begins to explain to him, oh, but kind of if you cut the wire up in 10 pieces, you have to wrap it around 10 times more. It's kind of a direct one-to-one trade-off. It really just doesn't mean that much. There's some back and forth between the two on this, and the conversation finishes with Upton going, by Jove. Nobody, not even the scientists, have ever thought of that before. It's something new. It's just what we need in making the new dynamo. And before Upton could go off and do what he needed to do on the experiment and modeling side here, Edison did have to give him pretty in-depth and detailed instructions. But we should remember, Edison really did not mind that kind of thing. He thought at this level of detail for a lot of things in life. I think he couldn't help it. The following is an excerpt from Edmund Morris's book, and it's Edison writing instructions to his gardener for a new property he bought in Florida. He handed the designs to the gardener with 1,500 words of precise instructions, informing him that 280 boatloads of topsoil would be needed to cover the eight-acre parcel four inches deep. He ordered 90 different fruit trees, including figs, mangoes, mulberries, alligator pears, plums, peaches, apricots, persimmons, and as many orange trees of best variety as will go on the end of the house plot. There should be a banana bed 20 feet square, a thousand pineapple plants, and a lemon hedge. And he wrote in the margin, if you cannot procure the regular lemon seed elsewhere, raise the lemon slips yourself from seeds found in the lemon. He also authorized the purchase of eight tons of fertilizer. We propose to have our ground the best manured in Florida. I think you should go back from the river and look for black freshwater muck. It evidently wants some fine decayed fibrous spongy matter like they're putting in the coconut holes to hold the manure and prevent it from going clear through to China. 
His mind seems to have really gravitated towards minutia as not just nice to have, but an essential part of understanding the greater whole. And in this case, it worked out like a charm. When Upton went through and did his course of experimentation, they did find that other dynamos seemed to be oversoaking their magnetic circuit with current. Gel writes, It never occurred to them that the increased current would be so scattered in every direction, but the right one. It must be said to Upton's credit that the work, as well as the calculation involved in it, required the expert abilities, both of a mathematician and a physicist. Like Maxwell with Faraday, Upton was the one who interpreted Edison's ideas and translated them into mathematical form. What he did was a classical piece of pioneer investigation conducted under extreme difficulties. And to be clear, Edison felt the same way. He knew how essential somebody like Upton was. I mean, first of all, in gel comparing Upton to Maxwell, I'm pretty sure Maxwell was Edison's favorite scientist. And Edison really did think there was a great spot for theory when it was applied to proper practical ends. And also something that should be pointed out here is a lot of people have the conception that Edison underpaid all of his workers. And that's 98% that's true that Edison underpaid his workers. But when you really proved yourself to him, you were worth your weight in gold to him. He was stingy in most cases. And when he hired you on, he would pay you almost nothing. But if you did prove yourself and he thought you were essential and you could really be a great instrument of his methods or brought a way of thinking he really enjoyed or thought could add to the operation, he could make you worth your weight in gold. And he often did. Upton, I believe, was well paid. His chief lab assistant, Charles Batchelor, I think was at several points richer than Edison. And Gell, when eventually he would lead the lighting operation in Europe, he was also brought into the inner circle and... The most extreme story of this is probably a guy named Samuel Insull, who came over from Europe, and he was, I guess you can call him Edison's bookkeeper, accountant, personal assistant. For about two years, he probably made the equivalent of around $40,000 a year. But Edison knew exactly how valuable he was, and once seats were coming open on some of his companies and he needed something like a corporate secretary to sit on the board of them in his place, and that came with a salary, he appointed Insul as the corporate secretary to every single one. And I'm pretty sure he went from making something like 40000 a year to being a millionaire soon thereafter. So if you could prove yourself to Edison and he thought you were essential, the sky was the limit because he really valued certain people in his operation. Now back to Jelth, he closed with his thoughts on the Upton work saying, after having the privilege of assisting him in those experiments today, I can only repeat what Edison himself said in an article written for the Electrical World and Engineer. As I now look back, I sometimes wonder at how much was done in so short a time. And when you see Edison write about the stuff in his journals, whether he's reflecting back on the past or writing about work in progress, he's so often using the word we more than I. It seems like he really did think about the whole operation as a team activity. And what's unclear, I'm not sure if by we, he meant the entire operation and all the laborers and everything like that, but he at least did mean him and his boys, him and his trusted circle, the people he deemed essential. And maybe he meant it broader than that, but it's very clear that he thought of most of the work going on as far beyond just him and his ideas and his brain. It was a team activity. And in talking about technical ideas, it seems like Edison really did treat everybody as equals. He didn't, he didn't pull rank. He didn't say, oh, well, I was right last time and I was right the time before, so I'm probably going to be right this time. Or, oh, I'm your boss 
so I'm right. He just, it seems like every time he debated whoever it was based on the merit of the point. And when somebody like Upton argues with him, this doesn't feel ridiculous because here you have a mathematical physicist from Princeton. But there's even some points where Jell talks about Edison going back and forth with him. Edison would go back and forth with a teenager. He was just debating the idea and he was treating a teenager with the same respect he had for professors, which even if it wasn't a high level of respect, you have to give him points for kind of treating everybody equally, don't you? And it does seem like they had fun. Don't get me wrong. They were there for a ton of time. Edison was not very respectful of the clock or work-life balance. But while they were there, it does seem like they had a lot of fun and they would turn a lot of stuff into games. Joe writes at one point about Upton, he was trying to mathematically work out how to wind an armature. Essentially, you can imagine there's a bunch of nodes and you have a wire and there's an optimal way to connect all the nodes with a wire to form some kind of pattern that's best for the job at hand. But they didn't really know what it was. And Joe writes, Upton's job of drawing the drum armature winding was a most difficult one. Although today it seems simple, he had practically no information to guide him. Firms engaged in that business did not give out their shop methods or secrets. Upton poured over the table, making experimental sheets on which the lines simply would not come out correctly. One day, as Edison stopped in to look over the work, he offered a suggestion. Why don't you have Chrissy, the mechanic, make up a few small wooden models of the drum, he asked. Then you could take a string and actually wind it around the block instead of drawing imaginary lines. But Upton protested. That wouldn't be scientific. Edison... What do you care if it does the work? So Upton agreed to try it out. As soon as he saw how practical it was and how much it helped him, he grew enthusiastic. Meanwhile, Edison suggested that we hold a winding bee in the laboratory with a cigar as the prize for the contestant who could beat the others winding one of the models correctly. And then Jell goes on to talk about their planning it. And then he says, the bee commenced about half past eight after we had all been refreshed for supper. And it turned out that Upton, with his more practice, did win, and he didn't actually smoke. So he handed the cigar to his good friend, Chrissy, the mechanic, who enabled him to win. And that seems kind of fair to me. And this particular time, Edison didn't really partake in the game. He left because he had to go somewhere. But at a different point, when he was building an early form of, I think, hand-driven dynamo for some of the guys in the shop, Jell writes, When this was finished, it was carried into the yard, and the dynamo bolted on. And then the workmen in the laboratory, the machine shop, and the office took turns driving it. Bets were made as to who could drive it the longest. With timepiece in hand, Edison acted as referee. So hopefully you're getting a sense of the kind of lab they ran. And of course, they were there a lot. And this is another reason that there was a really high attrition rate. Not only did Edison not pay a lot of the people that well, they had to be there very weird hours. And there's an account of somebody saying to Edison at one point, I think it must have been a new guy. This is unsustainable. You can't maintain a work-life balance working like this. And Edison kind of looked at him sideways or strange and said, what, what do you mean? There's just as much time coming as going. And he was a little bit joking, but I don't really think he was trying to be difficult. That's just actually kind of the way he thought about all this. This, this was his life. Experimentation was his life. It seems like the only portion of the day where some kind of schedule was set in stone for Edison was that lunch happened at midnight. The historical accounts say some stuff about him eating breakfast at 7 or 8, but it does seem like he would maybe sleep through it sometimes. But midnight lunch was kind of sacred. And there's a fantastic account from one of these midnight lunches that's just 
too good to not make it into the podcast. And the story comes from a journalist who spent overnight with Edison and his crew in the lab, talking about what happened around midnight lunch that particular night. While they were all gathered together, Edison started going on one of his rants about how academics were always listing things as scientific facts when they were not right at all. And if they experimented more, they would know more. It's kind of like your grandpa complaining about politics, except he's right. And he really was right, and he would prove it. And he would play this fun little game, and he did it here on this night, where he went and he had one of the lab assistants get a textbook off the shelf. I think it was Dictionary of Solubilities. And Edmund Morris writes, He scornfully pointed out an entry stating that platinum was infusible except in the heat of an oxygen flame. Edison said, Come here. I'll melt some in that gas jet. Look, in here now. You see along the magnified wire a number of little globules? That is where the platinum is fused. And this is just him pointing out in seconds that he can rig up an experiment showing how wrong those researchers are. And the quickness with which he did it had to make him about as happy as being right. Because to him, it seemed like the academics must just be taking the lazy way out. Like in his head, he was probably thinking, look, they didn't even do this. This took me 10 seconds or a minute. And maybe it was only 10 seconds or a minute for Edison. It wasn't that easy for other people. But this whole thing was really quite impressive. And then he goes back and he starts doing a similar thing with a different book. I think it was Science of Electrical Illumination or something along those lines. And Jell, Edison looks over as he's doing all this and Jell just looks like he's getting whiny. And Edison looks over and is like, why are you whining? Jell's hungry. And Edison goes, where's the lunch? And Edison and Jell are shocked when they both realize that there's no lunch there. And when they realized that, Edison gave somebody some money to get, I think it was some dried mackerel that night. And... Morris closes this whole tale, writing, By the time Edison stopped talking, it was 4 a.m., and everybody but the reporter had fallen asleep. Joe with his head on the Dictionary of Solubilities. Only then did Edison take off his coat and look around for a bench to nap on. Edison would often just sleep in the lab. And he did that even though this lab in particular at this point in time was just steps away from his house, I think. This is just what he did for some reason. This is... That's just who he was. His incessant need to experiment and figure things out did sometimes border on dangerous for him and his lab mates. When he deployed technology in the market, he was very, very safe and tested it to infinity in the lab to make sure, or to be as sure as one could be that nothing bad would happen out in the field. But in the lab, sometimes there was a bit of a Wild West feeling to the whole thing. You hear different accounts of Edison walking around with bandages on his face for a month in a row because of some chemical explosion. There was a separate account of him blowing out the windows at maybe it was his West Orange lab or his Manhattan lab. And probably my favorite, there's a funny account from his lawyer's personal correspondence. The guy's name was Grosvenor Lori, and this was his friend too, where he talked about spending the day with Edison and they tested what he called in his notes the Edison Express, which was just Edison's electric rail cars that he was playing with. And he wrote to his wife that they ran off the track. And he wrote, I protested at the speed on the sharp curves, designed to show the power of the engine. But E, Edison, said they had done it often. And finally, when the last trip was taken, I said I did not like it, but would go as long as Edison did. The train jumped the track on a short curve, throwing Chrissy, who was driving the engine with his face prone in the dirt, and another man in a comical somersault through some underbrush. 
Edison was off in a minute, jumping and laughing and declaring it a most beautiful accident. Chrissy got up, his face bleeding and a good deal shaken, and I shall never forget the expression of voice and face in which he said, with some foreign accent, it was a Swiss accent, oh yes, perfectly safe. I could only find one account of Edison being really rattled by a lab accident. And it was, I guess, one that didn't even happen in his lab. It was out in the field when he first installed his first Pearl Street Dynamo station in Lower Manhattan. And this was the station that lit up a lot of the bulbs in the nearby district, that first lighting district that was all important. And he wanted to see what would happen if he rigged together two of the dynamos to see if it would operate just as efficiently, more, or just... He wanted to see. He didn't really know what was going to happen. And essentially what happened was when he rigged them together, instead of them both operating at their normal power, we'll call it X, each of them kind of oscillated back and forth, with one of them being at no power and the other being at 2X, double the power or something of that sort. And they sort of went back and forth oscillating between that one and then the other or something of that nature. And this phenomenon is apparently called hunting. But what happened was the building already had to be enforced to hold the weight of the dynamos when they were initially installed. And with them operating at double speed and overheating, the floor was melting and the building was shaking and it genuinely felt like the whole building was about to come down. Edison told somebody quickly to turn the experiment off and it was hard and they were able to do it. But that was one case where Edison was shaken. Afterward, he kind of just left with one of the lab members. I think it was this guy, Johnson. And they went over to the bar across the street and Edison, who didn't drink, had Johnson order him a drink. And when Johnson put it in front of him, Edison kind of asked him. He was so unfamiliar with drinking. He said, am I to drink all of that? And Johnson replied, yeah, you are. So many of the people we're talking about, like Jell and Upton, they knew Edison by name far before they came into his employ. Somebody like Bachelor, who was Edison's longtime lab assistant and maybe probably his best friend in the lab, he had been with Edison since they were younger. But a lot of these people write in their accounts when they first meet Edison of how the whole operation feels very strange or rickety or more haphazard than they ever would have imagined. Joe wrote in his accounts, Much to my surprise and somewhat to my discomfiture, I found things in the clappered building topsy-turvy. And that word topsy-turvy is probably a great descriptor. When Edison started his lighting work and the financiers gave him the equivalent of $4 million today to start up his experiments, they didn't get to go out and visit the lab for probably two or three months because he didn't want them to see until he thought the work was in a better state. And when they came out, prior to coming out, they had this feeling where they knew the Madden by reputation and there was a general sense that the Wizard of Menlo can't fail. But that confidence in them was really shaken when they went out and they saw how the whole operation worked. Because on the one hand, Edison can plan out experiments to an extremely exacting degree and plan really far ahead into the future extremely deliberately and in a ridiculous amount of detail. But the physical operation and the day-to-day -day of what it looked like felt very haphazard. I think it might have been Grosvenor Lowry who would repeatedly get really disheartened and scared at the state of the projects. And he would talk about how all he needed to do was go talk to Edison because Edison would explain it to him and how when you zoomed out, things were really going according to plan and how he'd accounted for all the variables. One time Lowry said to Edison that he thought he should just marry Edison because somehow Edison had a way of putting his mind at ease and no matter how stressed he was, Edison had the ability to step back and explain it and walk him or anybody through it so they were a little less terrified at the chaos of the whole operation. Because I think 
I don't know if Edison knew how it looked to other people, but he knew that the way he did things unsettled people sometimes. So he found ways to account for that. And the people who worked with him repeatedly were the ones who really came to understand and trust in him as a planner. Upton, when he first started at the lab, thought that the guy was kind of crazy, Edison, because they'd failed at these experiments. I forget what the experiments were, but they'd failed for two or three or four or five months. And Edison, in his head, really had a good feeling that they were iterating towards something close because he had some kind of plan and he felt that they were moving towards it. But in Upton's head, if it was just fail, 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 in his head, if you fail for four months, that's the sign that the thing's no good, not that you're getting closer. And this really was one of Edison's great skills, was being able to have a sense of when they were on track and keep it straight in his head. And with that high-level plan in place, the lab really had its own kind of informal sort of chaotic fun flow. You'll have Upton doing some math and Edison will go over and make fun of him and recommend, oh, here's how you can go play with Crussy, the mechanic. Edison was a big proponent of the experimentalists doing a lot of their work alongside the machine shop. As an aside, he took an inordinate amount of pride in his machine shop and even more so in his scrap heap. He mentions it multiple times in the sources. But anyway, you'll have people like Upton and Crusey playing, doing their thing, having their back and forth between the machine shop and one room and experiment in another. Over in some other corner or some other floor, you'll have somebody like Edison and Bachelor, and I think what they I think they called it the assay nook. Just chemicals all over the walls, figuring out whatever sub-problem of the day or week needed to be figured out. There were hundreds, and once Edison had that high-level idea of which hundred problems they needed to figure out one by one, the way they did it was just kind of ugly experimentation a lot of the time. And yes, the lab was staffed with people with great electrical, metallurgical, and chemical knowledge. But in practice, a lot of how they figured out those individual steps was just kind of ugly brute force experimentation. And Edison was okay with that, as long as it got the job done. And I know I've said it before, but his courses of research were just so remarkably detailed. To give you an idea, there was a great account from a Columbia professor, and I think it was 1929, who said this about Edison's efforts, just on the light bulb. A whole book could be written about the vast amount of work which Mr. Edison and his assistants had to perform in order to get the right kind of filament and the right kind of vacuum. And there's an excerpt written in my piece today which dives exactly into what this effort looked like, and it's painful from Edmund Morris. For week after week, the two men cut, planed, and carbonized filaments from every fibrous substance they could get. Hickory, holly, maple, and rosewood splints, sassafras pith, monkey bast, ginger root, pomegranate peel, fragrant strips of eucalyptus and cinnamon bark, milkweed, palm fronds, spruce, tarred cotton, baywood, cedar, flax, coconut kuar, jute boiled in maple syrup, manila hemp twined and papered and soaked in olive oil. Edison rejected more than 6,000 specimens of varying integrity as they all warped or split. Somewhere in God's almighty workshop, there is a vegetable growth with geometrically powerful fibers suitable to our use, Edison said. Edmund Morris continues, In the dog days, as heat beat down on straw hats and rattan parasols, the idea of bamboo suggested itself to him. Nothing in nature grew straighter and stronger than this pipe-like grass, so easy to slice from the calm and to bend, with its silicous epidermis taking the strain of internal compression. It had the additional virtue, ideal for his purpose, of being highly resistant to the volcanic force. 
And here's Edison drawing on his vast knowledge of materials and how they react under different conditions. Because this style of experimenting was not anomalous for him. He did this kind of thing most days. So he'd really built up a great, intuition's the wrong word. He just had a memory for a lot of the things he'd done and what happened to different materials he played with under various conditions. So whenever he came to a new problem, he usually had something analogous from his past that he can bring to the table. This is what happened earlier when he was talking to Upton about his experiments with telegraph instruments and how they came in handy when talking about dynamos. When you spent this much of your life experimenting, you usually have something pretty useful you can bring to play on the current problem coming from your past experience. And he enjoyed this. He enjoyed living in the world of the practical. He didn't mind having to bend filaments to different angles or change temperatures or just change things one by one by one. And this is how he came to know so much about the underlying knowledge and fields he often didn't necessarily care that much about. He just had better data to work with. And you really don't need to be great at the theoretical side of a field if you just have an order of magnitude more and better experimental data than so many of the other researchers in it. Now, some will call Edison's approach unscientific because you're supposed to have more theory-based hypothesis and all that stuff. We'll get to all that in a moment. But to start, we should point out that it seems like Edison very much was right and that the results in history are on his side here. He got done what he needed to get done when nobody else could and people had been trying for so long. And was he annoying about it? Probably, yeah. That one time when the reporter was spending the night in his lab and Edison was putting on his little demonstration where he had his lab assistant take out the textbook and he would disprove stuff in there. There's a quote that he said to the reporter and it goes, Professor this or that will controvert you out of the books and prove out of the books that it can't be, even though you have it right in the hollow of your hand and can break his spectacles with it. But just because he was annoying about it or kind of thumbing his nose at people doesn't make him any less right. And this was not some weird only Edisonian ideology. A decade or two later, when they were setting up what some people call the first industrial R&D lab, the GE Research Laboratory, Willis Whitney also came on very Edisonian ideals. The following excerpt comes from Leonard Reach's book from the 1980s on GE and Bell Labs. Here he's talking about Willis Whitney, who was previously an MIT professor, and how he ran the GE Research Lab. His philosophy harked back to Francis Bacon's 17th century utilitarian experimental approach, which foreswore analysis based on pre-existing theory. Bacon believed that the accumulation of data, combined with observation and experience, would eventually lead to the solution of all research problems. Whitney did not come to GE with this Baconian approach. His experience there directed him to it. During the laboratory's early years, Whitney failed to solve an important problem related to arc lighting because the theoretical constructs of electrochemistry he brought to this work proved ineffective. This finally led him to question the value of disciplinary approaches when applied to industrial research and urge his staff to leave aside disciplinary-based theory in order to concentrate on understanding phenomena through observation and experiment. Of course, theory and experiment went hand in hand, but Whitney very strongly suggested that the latter precede any attempt at detailed theoretical analysis. He believed that chance favored the prepared mind, and he wanted to maximize the chances while keeping the minds open to new interpretations. And this is the GE Research Lab figuring out the hard way 10 plus years after Edison figured this out in his own work. And the area of electricity really did need a man like Edison, somebody to take the field to the next level. 
Elting Morrison, the MIT STS professor who wrote that book that was a history of American learning by doing, wrote this in comparing Edison and the field of electricity to steel. A simple way to begin is to say that while in 1864, no one knew very much about steel except how to make it, in 1875, a good many people knew a good deal about electricity, but were not at all sure of what could be done with it. For a hundred years, men had been trying things out and thinking hard in an effort to obtain a fuller understanding of the imponderable fluid, meaning electricity. Some of the names are Galvani, Volta, Coulomb, Davy, Gauss, Faraday, and Maxwell. What, by their labors they had accumulated by 1875, was a considerable body of knowledge and some generalizing equations and assumptions having to do with the properties and responses of electricity. It is interesting that five years after Bessemer's discovery, men were making commercial steel, while almost half a century after Faraday's demonstrations of an electric motor, no one made a more serious effort to design such equipment with practical goals in mind. And this is Morrison pointing out just how vexing a lot of this was. And let's not forget that Edison was not the first to an incandescent light bulb, but neither was Swan. This had been going on since Davy in 1802. What nobody had been able to do is make this whole thing work. What they were dealing with it was an area where they had specific verticals where they knew a lot of knowledge and just tons of holes and tons of things they thought were the case that were just not so. And Morrison continues on this line. For this, there were several reasons. For one thing, electricity reversed the classical learning process. Men had put up buildings for a long time before they began to construct a theory of arches. They'd run heat engines for a long time before they began to develop the field of thermodynamics. The customary way was to start with the thing and work to the thought. With electricity, the problem was to translate the thinking into mechanisms that did work. And that proved, in unfamiliar circumstances, hard to do. Then too, electricity was not like any of the other energies men have used. Wind, falling water, even steam. Compared to these, it was more subtle, more intricate, and followed more sophisticated paths of logic. And in saying that, it's pretty clear why we weren't able to physically do stuff with electricity before we had some academic understanding of it. That's for certain. But also, that being said, it makes a lot of sense why people of the academic bent, who cared about knowing things for certain and kind of having standardized methods, were incapable of making any practical use of electricity to this point. You needed somebody who could take advantage of their papers and their theories and their methods, but also somebody who was at home in the pure inventive process, brute force experimentation process, or whatever you want to call it, that we've described of Edison. And Morrison continues, so it, electricity, attracted men who at first were far less interested in finding new ways to do work than exploring a mysterious region. And finally, almost everything that electrical energy might do, provide heat, light, power, was already done by other means. So sensible men in the marketplace were quite prepared to stay with what they had. Coal, gas, steam. Edison would not accept that. And to be very clear, he was not a sensible man. Let's not forget Upton, Lowry, the financiers. Lots of people did think he was crazy a lot of the time. And I don't think he's being unfair to himself when he says his inventive process was 2% genius and 98% patience or hard work. And that's not because he didn't have a certain level of genius. He probably did. It's just because he had an otherworldly level of patience and ambition and willingness to solve things problem by problem by problem. It was just beyond reason. No sane person would want to do that. 
And since this is a progress study substack and we're trying to have some fun on these podcasts, all of this raises a really interesting question that's kind of hard to answer. Is this science? Is what Edison was doing science or is it something else that takes advantage of science and sometimes contributes to it, but it's kind of some third thing that's adjacent, but not exactly the same. A lot of researchers would say, probably no, this doesn't, this doesn't feel like science. Edison had more of a goal than a theory. He was trying to make a light bulb work. He was trying to do it for a certain price. He had all these constraints that he was trying to work within, and he did successfully work within them. He had a clear goal, but it had little to do with scientific theory. It was just that every so often they would come up with a certain small scientific theory to make their greater goal work, but that was more incidental. And that's one way to think about it, but when you put on your 1930, 1940, 1950 glasses, Edison's workflow and scientific processes or experimental process, whatever you want to call it, sound remarkably similar to a lot of the biochemists, physicists, and biologists from the 1930s and 40s who would come to be known as molecular biologists. I covered all these individuals at length in the Rockefeller Foundation article on my Substack, and these are the kinds of people you need before you could come upon a field similar to a lot of the NIH-funded fields today, where you have big theories that explain lots of what's going on and where you can predict inputs based on outputs mostly with a small margin of error and you could submit a grant proposal that has a 90 plus percent chance of working. This is the dirty work that you need to get a field like that. You need people like Edison or people like Max Delbruck spending years on the ugly fiddling at a new area of technology or research. And by fiddling, I don't just mean running experiments with outcomes that are anyone's guess or where it's fail, 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 fail. What the failure looks like in a field this early when you're doing science in the dark is also horrible. A lot of your failures are just in helping you figure out how to get an experiment to run at all. And a lot of times that might take years. And what's so hard about this stage is just like when we talked about Upton thought Edison was crazy, but Edison thought they were failing closer to success, not that this thing was a dead end. The early field of molecular biology had very similar issues where it's very impressive that Warren Weaver, who funded a lot of that work, felt confident in doubling down on the Rockefeller Foundation's bet for 10 or 15 years. Because it was really hard for a lot of people to tell if they were failing towards success or if it was just a massive money dump. Because in this stage, researchers seem to just be trying things almost randomly, doing the kind of iterations between experiments that you might see from kids with a chemistry kit in a basement. Andre Luoff writes in Phage and the Origins of Molecular Biology on just how he came to his Nobel Prize winning experiment on bacterial reproduction. He writes, negative experiments piled up until after months and months of despair, it was decided to irradiate the bacteria with ultraviolet light. This was not rational at all, for ultraviolet radiations kill bacteria and bacteriophages. And on a strictly logical basis, the idea still looks illogical in retrospect. And since publishing my Rockefeller Foundation piece, I've learned that it wasn't just me that came upon the analogy of doing science in the dark to attempt to describe the work of that group of researchers in the 30s and 40s like Woff. I found that Francois Jacob, who was also a figure in molecular biology at the time, referred to science at the stage as night science. So extremely similar. Apparently this is maybe just the logical metaphor to attempt to explain what it is to be doing science at the true frontier. Just how dark it feels to be living there on a day-to-day -day basis, year after year. 
and he writes of what he calls night science. Night science wanders blindly. It hesitates, stumbles, falls back, sweats, wakes with a start. Doubting everything, it feels its way, questions itself, constantly pulls itself together. It is a sort of workshop of the possible, where are elaborated what will become the building materials of science, where hypotheses take the form of vague presentiments, of hazy sensations, where phenomena are still mere solitary events with no link between them, where the plans for experiments have barely taken form, where thought proceeds along Sinuith's paths, torturous streets, most often blind alleys. At the mercy of chance, the mind frets in the labyrinth, deluged with messages, in a quest of a sign, of a wink, of an unforeseen connection. Like a prisoner in a cell, it paces about looking for a way out, a glimmer of light. Ceaselessly, it goes from hope to disappointment, from exaltation to melancholy. It is impossible to predict whether night science will ever pass to the day condition. And now, I'm sure there are those today who don't even consider the work of early molecular biologists to be proper science, or they think it's bad science. And I don't agree with that, but if that's what they think, that's okay. But if there are people listening to this who think that the early molecular biologists and what they were doing was clearly science, and what Edison was doing was clearly not, in my Rockefeller Foundation piece, I read a description of these early molecular biologists and their work throughout the 1930s and early 1940s. And much of the description describing them and their work and the state of the field and how they had to run experiments and what led to learning does sound remarkably similar to what Edison and his team had to do in the field of electricity around 1880. And I think it really blurs the line between these two. It becomes much harder to draw a distinction. And I'm not saying there isn't one. There very well might be a distinction, but it's not as clear as you would think. I write, Changing one or two parameters marginally and leaving everything else constant from a similar experiment that worked in the existing literature seems to be the careful luxury of researchers that are already somewhere worth being in terms of how much they know about a field. That kind of thing is what science looks like further along on a branch. In the case of a molecular biologist circa 1940, little improvements on knowing jack shit still left one with jack shit. The researcher's search process in undertaking a course of experiments had to be more ambitious. In practice, it was conceptually closer to a midpoint search algorithm, casting themselves out into open space and, of course, finding nothing in the beginning, but gradually building on the things they did learn from one experiment to the next. You find nothing each time, for a while, but you find a kind of nothing that's iteratively closer to something, even if it's still nothing. Eventually, when it worked out, they'd strike upon something quite new and useful. Other times, they'd find not much, and that was okay too. Oftentimes, the learning was much more in the realm of learning by doing than stereotypical scientific learning. These practical learnings were often things related to how and why experiments, materials, and solutions behaved the way they did in this new area of science. The actual results of many of these finicky experiments were mostly useless. This element of learning by doing was a necessary stage of the process that would eventually allow the scientists to be able to run experiments that had stronger, more traditional scientific validity. In the case of molecular biology, there are some who view the finding of Watson and Crick as the birth of the golden era of the field. Because after that finding, findings really piled on themselves rapidly for about 12 or 13 years. But there were others who believed that their finding more ushered in the era of brute force in the field. And this term brute force comes from John Cairns's Nature article in 1999 called The Last Days in Arcadia, where he talked about how, yes, 
By 1966, the genetic code had been worked out, but he felt it was more by brute force than subtle argument, meaning it was kind of just a matter of time. They did it one by one using the methods that inevitably were gonna come about from Watson and Crick's discovery. And that's okay, that's not saying anything bad about the researchers who worked on this throughout the 1950s and early 1960s. This is what winning looks like. This is what transitioning from a young branch to an older branch of science looks like. But you can see how the researchers who are around for the hard and ridiculously difficult and failure-prone experimenting can look down their noses a little bit at the young researchers who came about later when things weren't really so uncertain anymore. When it seemed like learning certain things was just a matter of time and not a question of if it was possible at all. Now, with that in mind, we come back to the big question. How do we think about Edison's work? Was it science? Now, one view, Edison was just some inventor who thought he knew more science than he did. And yeah, his inventions worked and were useful, but a lot of the stuff he wrote down when looking back at it with a modern scientific lens was actually not accurate. And maybe that's right, that's one view, and I guess a lot of people do have it, so it's probably reasonable. But a different view, maybe the work he did in developing his bulb and lighting system was an extremely useful tool, a scientific tool, that allowed those who came after him to work out the field far more quickly than they would have been able to without him. A fantastic closed system on which to do scientific research, where one by one, step by step, the entire field of researchers could work its way towards a more complete study of electricity. You probably know what I think. What do you think? Hope you enjoyed this first episode of the Freak Takes Podcast. Please like, subscribe, share, comment. Any interesting thoughts you have, I'd love to hear them. And as always, feel free to send me any interesting ideas that you'd like to see on the podcast. Thanks so much and have a fantastic day. And if anybody is curious and wants to follow me because they're listening to this on Spotify, my substack is freaktakes.substack.com and my Twitter is Eric underscore is underscore weird. I'm very surprised that handle was available and I like it a lot. Have a good day.